Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Pride going before destruction. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode five of this podcast, which I will call The Exodus. And so we will be discussing a bit about uh, Israel in Egypt as slaves. So evidence for that, as well as the Red Sea crossing. Just, uh, you know, these are big claims in the Bible. And so we are going to talk about that today. Now, last week, I've been trying to do these once a week, but last weekend I was moving. So I didn't really end up with any time to do this podcast. So uh, I had to skip. I decided, I mean, I had some time, but I was so exhausted and I didn't really have time to prepare um, as I was getting ready to move, I didn't move far, actually. <laughs> I'm in the same, it's like a house with three different apartments, kind of. So I just moved downstairs, but still, I was exhausted. I did most of the heavy lifting myself with a little help from my sister. But, uh, you know, it's it's really hot here in Texas. And so just, you know that in and of itself is exhausting it's been over a hundred most of the last month or so and so yeah so i i got that done i'm i still have some nick uh knickknack cleanup to do and organize things here at my new place but for the most part i moved in and uh just a reminder um if you have any comments of the previous episodes that I've done or any questions or any prayer requests or anything like that, feel free to email me at truthtransistorradio at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you. Um, or if you have any comments or disagreements or anything like that, you know. Um, I do not claim to be right about everything. In fact, I know that I'm probably wrong about things a lot of what i'm doing is giving you references to people that are experts that uh, that i refer you to because i'm not an expert so i'm just passing these things along and and uh, saying hey check this out you know and it's just uh we're just kind of going through those things which convinced me that the bible is true so we've talked about creation evolution, we've talked about the flood, we've talked about the Tower of Babel, and now we're going to talk about the Exodus. And, uh, you know, these are big claims, like in, in secular history, and, you know, they claim that there's no evidence that Israel was even in Egypt. And if they were, that there wasn't some mass, um, you know, group of people that went 
at the same time and the, and they say that there's no evidence of the red sea opening up and the israelites walking across and the uh egyptian soldiers being wiped out and all the you know even the pharaoh w- was with them uh and that's the claim of secular historians but is that accurate well we're going to talk about that today so that'll be a lot of fun but regardless of what you think of this podcast or the evidence that I'm, you know, the resources I'm presenting or anything like that, if you're not convinced, again, I encourage you, as I did, uh, and uh, any agnostic or anyone that's having doubts, even as a Christian, to say a prayer to the Creator God that He would reveal the truth to you and just have an open heart and just a desire to know the truth and not what you necessarily want to believe or, you know, that if there's any biases in your heart, try to check that and um, and just honestly cry out to God and say, you know, are, are you real? <laughs> are, is the Bible true? You know, I encourage you to do that. And so... You know, whether or not he chooses to use my podcast to inc- to uh, convince you, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I pray that at least somebody out there would be encouraged by this. And I'm just trying to pass on the things that encouraged me in the past. So hopefully... It's it's encouraging or at least interesting enough for you to uh, want to dig through these resources that I'm passing along and take it, uh, you know, take it for what it is, you know, um, not necessarily uh, accept everything, but to to take it as a challenge, maybe to go and do the research and to, to seek out these things. So we're going to get into the Exodus, Israel being enslaved in Egypt, as well as the Red Sea crossing. But first, uh, here is a story of a spider by the band of Montreal. And the name of this is Tross Brief Life as a Spider. All the baby spiders in the nursery Waving to each other Clinging to their mothers And smile at their dads Smile at their dads Who say now that's a clever lad One particular spider, whose parents had named Ira, fell out of his mother's arms and became lost inside the giant insect hospital. Since mother spiders give birth to so many babies at one time, it is exceedingly difficult to keep track of all of them, and sometimes a baby will get lost without its mother ever being aware of its absence. Ira was just such a case. He crawled about for hours crying, but his mother couldn't hear him, for Ira was a mute. This is where the story gets interesting. He opened his mouth and discovered a lake and a crater on his tongue. He was thirsty, so he drank from the lake. This proved to be a fatal mistake, as the lake was really a cake filled with poisonous snakes, and Ira died. A nurse discovered dead baby Ira and sank with grief. She gently lifted him up to her breast and carried him weeping to the head nurse to see if any baby spiders had been reported missing. The head nurse checked her missing baby spider file and told her that no, 
No missing baby spiders have been reported. The nurse holding dead baby Ira then asked if they could have a funeral for him. The head nurse, being a very caring grasshopper, agreed that that would be the proper thing to do. So they dug a small hole near a yellow tulip, held a brief but moving requiem, and with great sadness buried baby Ira. Miraculously, Ira was quickly reincarnated as a wild horse on the far-off planet called Nearly. On Nearly, wild horses hold the majority in the Senate, and Ira has discovered pudding. His favorite is the kind without raisins. All the baby spiders in the nursery Waving to each other Clinging to their mothers And smile at their dad Smile at their dad To say now that's a clever lad So that was Of Montreal is the name of the group. And the name of that track was Ira's Brief Life as a Spider. And it's on the album called Horse and Elephant Eatery, No Elephants Allowed. The Singles and Songles album. <laughs> I really enjoy that group. So anyway, check them out. Uh, I don't want to just use that in vain. I want people to, I want to refer people to it and give them credit. All right, so we're going to talk now about the Exodus. And uh, first of all, I want to just, uh, we'll talk a little bit about what the Bible says happened. And then I'll play you some clips about the evidence for it. Now, just for some context, we left off last time talking about the dispersing of man uh, in Genesis 11, um, when uh, different tongues were um, divided uh, when there was languages and and peoples were scattered around the earth. And one of the sons of Noah was Shem. And it says Shem had a... Uh, and then you go down in chapter Genesis 11. I'm not going to read all of these, but you keep going down and... Eventually, you get to uh, Abram, who was the son, uh, uh, an, ans- uh, an offspring of, in the line of Shem. And God made a promise with Abram. And uh, just to summarize, and you can read this for yourself in Genesis 12, 13, 14, etc., reading those chapters. God made a promise uh, in Abraham uh, making uh, giving him a promised land as well as his people his offspring um, and also that the Messiah would come through his seed and um, while on one hand God did use Israel and showed a lot of things through Israel um, and I don't want to take that away from from anything you you have a lot of things such as the tabernacle and, and uh, the laws, the commandments of God. Um, but also the main thing is that the seed of the Messiah, the Messiah Jesus Christ, would come through Abraham's seed. And so a lot of people tend to get racist with this kind of stuff in the sense that either they prop up the Jewish people, the Abrahamic people, uh, above everybody else, or 
because they rejected Christ, they, um, you know, will despise that group of people. So there's those two extremes. And once again, God created all humans, all, all races, you know, everyone's been created by God. So there's no reason to get divided on this issue. But the main thing is that God uh, became a man through the seed of Abraham. So that's not the main point of this podcast. I just wanted to give some context. But Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob became the father of, well, he was, his name was changed to Israel. And he had 12 sons. And those 12 sons were basically the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was Joseph. And Joseph seemed to be a favorite of of his father Israel, Jacob, and gave him these elaborate gifts and things. And his other brothers, his 11 brothers, were jealous of him. And so they made a plan and they, first of all, they threw him in a pit and then uh, sold him to slavery to Egypt. And then killed a an animal and put the blood on the his Joseph's coat and took it to their father and said uh, I think we found this and just so that you know they would have something to blame it on so Jacob uh, not Jacob Joseph became a slave in Egypt um, and through some circumstances now we're fast forwarding to Genesis chapters, uh, let's see here, 28, 29, Jacob becomes Israel in chapter 32, and uh, the death of Isaac is at the end of chapter 35. So yeah, this is a long book, it gets into a lot of details here. Joseph thrown into the pit in chapter 37. And then we find him in... in uh, so while he, he gets thrown into prison, and all, you can find all the details. Joseph gets thrown into prison while he's in Egypt because he gets falsely accused of raping the daughter of his boss. I forget his name, Potiphar. Um, I believe. Um, but anyway, he gets thrown into jail because of that. And then in jail, when he's in, in prison, there's uh, two people that have dreams. And Joseph, one of the gifts that Joseph has is interpreting dreams. And, uh, you know, um, he already had done so with his brothers and his father and one of the dreams they had, and I won't give the dream away, but the dreams away, but basically the, the interpretation was that his 11 brothers and his mother and father would bow down to him. And of course, his brothers hated that. That fueled, you know, their hatred even more. And the father even rebuked him. And so, you know, obviously 
they didn't like that very much. But those dreams were dreams that he had and, and he knew the interpretation of them. And maybe there was a bit of pride in Joseph's part. He was by no means perfect. But now he's in prison in Egypt as a slave, gets thrown into prison, and two of the prison mates uh, have dreams, and Joseph is able to interpret them, and they both come true. One of them becomes a bread maker in the Pharaoh's house, and then the Pharaoh has a dream, and his wise men are unable to interpret this dream, but the bread uh, maker um, or this, this person that ends up working for Pharaoh remembers Joseph. And so Joseph is called out and Joseph is able to interpret the dream. And this becomes the dream has to, the interpretation of the dream was that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And the, the Pharaoh was pleased by this and put J Joseph in charge, second only to Pharaoh, in all the land of Egypt. So this is a bold claim in the Bible. And people say, well, there's no evidence in Egyptian history that this was the case. We, it seems like in Egyptian history we would find Joseph. And the... The response to that is that according to some of these historians, we actually do. And they think that maybe there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and the Egyptian uh, person by the name of Imhotep. So now we're going to listen to a clip concerning uh, this idea. On an island just below the first cataract of the Nile, an ancient inscription written around the 4th century B.C. was found which claimed to be a copy of a document written by Pharaoh Djoser more than 1,000 years earlier. It is the story of a land grant made by the Pharaoh to the priests of the god Num. It tells of seven years of famine and seven years of plenty, how Pharaoh had a dream and consulted his chancellor for help, it contains most elements of the seven years of famine and seven years of plenty story, although they were corrupted in this account, written over 1,000 years after the event took place. But most importantly, the priests who wrote this inscription were relying upon the land grants made by this pharaoh to justify their claim to some land. They were not writing what they believed was an ancient myth. They obviously believed the land grants made by Pharaoh Djoser to still be valid and of enough authority to still be in effect well over 1,000 years later. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh. Ancient Egyptian records list Djoser as the 16th Pharaoh of Egypt, and historians have classified him with the so-called Third Dynasty. His chancellor, named Imhotep, was first known through the writings of the Egyptian historian Manetho, who in the 3rd century BC wrote, During Djoser's reign there lived a man named Imhotep, who had the reputation of the Greek god of medicine, and who invented the art of building with hewn stone. The legends attributed to Imhotep 
were so incredible that he was considered to be mythical until this century when excavations at Djoser's Pyramid Complex revealed the base of a statue with the name Djoser on it and the name I'm Hotep with his long list of titles, one of which was Chief Under the King, a title which first appears with I'm Hotep and also was first bestowed upon Joseph. Imhotep was also the architect of Pharaoh Djoser's pyramid and surrounding complex, a veritable city within a city of incredible beauty and extremely advanced in design. Built on the plateau of Saqqara adjacent to ancient Memphis, the pyramid within the complex is the first ever built in Egypt. Ron Wyatt spent a great deal of time here searching for evidence which might shed light on the biblical account. Such an event is the famine described in the story of Joseph, and the distribution of grain to the other countries would have required a major facility and system of organization. When the famine came and Joseph's brothers came from Canaan to get grain from Egypt, we are told that they went to Joseph, which indicates that he personally oversaw the distribution, at least to those coming from foreign countries and this would mean that there was certainly a central location or granary to which the foreigners came. The complex at Saqqara contains eleven massive pits which even the Egyptians are at a loss to explain. They are not tombs, for all tombs were underground and carefully sealed, while these were accessible from the surface, and they are extremely large. But most fascinating is the fact that they are all connected by chutes. Ron believes these were the grain storage pits of the seven-year famine. As grain was removed from one pit, grain from the other pits flowed through the chutes, making the grain always accessible from one location. These are within the wall of the step pyramid complex, which has only one entrance, and it opens to a long covered passageway with small cubicles on each side, each just the right size for a person to sit with perhaps a small table. The narrow, singular entrance would have allowed only a few people to enter at a time. There was no doubt in Ron's mind that this was the main center of grain distribution on a massive scale. Now that was a clip from a documentary about Ron Wyatt's findings. And I would encourage you to look him up. Um, I will also leave a, a link to this, uh, where I got this clip from. But there's many other good Ron Wyatt things. Some things I'm not sure about that he found. But I think his stuff concerning uh, Joseph in Egypt and the Exodus is really good. And um, so the so what we see is... Joseph in Egypt and uh, the uh, the idea that maybe he was Imhotep and, and all the similarities between the two of them. And in, cor in accordance to secular archaeology and hist history, they would say this is way too early for Joseph. Um, and so one of the other problems is the timeline, which you know, I'll get into in a minute, but, um, basically we see, here's Joseph now as second in command only to Pharaoh. And he 
is the administrator to gather and collect during the seven years of plenty so that they would be able to sell to pe people from all over the place to uh, to people to come and gather uh, grain during the famine, the seven years of famine. And amongst the people that came were his brothers and his father and mother. And that's also uh, in Genesis as we get into the later chapters. Um, like... chapters 45 46 like in the 40s in there and this is where the dream is fulfilled once they are all there all his brothers and his mother and father are there that they are basically bowing to him as a ruler in Egypt and thus his dream was fulfilled but in the end he forgave them for his brothers for what they did to him and instead uh, put them in in good uh, places in in the uh, in his house and honored them and you go a, a couple a few generations later the Israelites the people uh, the children of Israel became a lot in number and a future Pharaoh several generations later did not know Joseph and in fact became uh, I don't know if afraid is the right word but all of a sudden the numbers of you know the, they were being very fruitful and multiplying and he was afraid the new Pharaoh was afraid that they would overtake them so instead so to keep them from overtaking Egypt he enslaved them and that leads us to the story of all the plagues that occurred uh, or with Moses. And Moses, who also actually, um, the story of Moses is interesting, too, because um, when all the Egyptians were being enslaved, in fact, the Pharaoh also commanded that the baby boy of all of Egyptian, uh, I'm sorry, all the Israeli baby boys under the age of two, I believe, would should be killed. So one of the parents who was the parents of Moses uh, wrapped up their baby, which was baby Moses, and put him on a river. And it was found by an Egyptian woman who was very high in command. I mean, not command, but, you know, high up in a high uh, up family. And she raised uh, Moses. And so Moses now has become part of the royal family. But he ends up murdering somebody and gets uh, sent to or no, he ends up fleeing to the wilderness because now he's a, a fugitive. But then God asks him to go and rescue, you know, his people. Of course, this is, you know, impossible for him. I equated this in my YouTube channel when I talked about this to if in back in the 1940s when Hitler was 
persecuting Jewish people. Uh, I picked, I randomly picked Groucho Marx, who's Jewish by hair, uh, by, you know, genetically. And he's a, was a comedian back in the thirties. I, I thought, okay, let's put this in perspective here. What if God appeared to Groucho Marx and told him, I want you to go to Germany and tell Hitler to let, let your people go. <laughs> and this seems impossible. It, it is impossible for Groucho to do. But if God is behind it, then he can accomplish his will. So that's basically what God was asking Moses to do to the most powerful nation in the world at that time and to go talk to the Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, I think, knew Moses because he lived in the royal family, but he was a fugitive as well. So I don't know how this all worked, but God obviously was behind it. And God sent all of these plagues and everything, and uh, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. And finally, Pharaoh let him let his people go. And so Moses and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Jewish people now walked and and just left, just left Egypt. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And according to Genesis, we're getting into the latter part of Genesis now. The people walked and ended up at what is the Red Sea. And they were trapped. And uh, Pharaoh decided his heart was hardened again. And all of his horsemen and all the men of Egypt went after the Israelite people. And this leads to the famous story, I'm sure you've heard of it, where God departs or splits the Red Sea. The, the, Israel, the Israeli people walk across on dry land. And once they get across, Pharaoh's, uh, all of Pharaoh's armies come after them and then the, the Red Sea collapses over them. So this is a big miraculous claim in the Bible. And if this story really happened, you would expect to find, you know, chariot parts and, and things in the Red Sea. Now, secular historians haven't really, you know, researched this or or done much study on this and if they have they don't really want to acknowledge it in mainstream secular archaeology and, and and things but some Christians have and uh, so I'm going to play a clip now concerning evidence for this event and this is from the John 1010 project and so you know, Ron Wyatt has some good stuff on this as well, but uh, this clip is from the John 10, 10 Project, and I would check them out as well. For more than 20 years, divers and explorers from three continents, each intrigued by clues linking the Gulf of Aqaba and the biblical Yam Suf, 
have come to Nueva Beach seeking possible evidence of an Israelite crossing. Their search focused on the 600 chariots the Bible says were destroyed in the Red Sea. Inscriptions thousands of years old and the few chariots recovered from ancient tombs reveal much about the construction of these legendary vehicles of war. Could any of them actually be found on the seafloor off the Nueva Peninsula? The first time I came to Nueva, the purpose was to verify, to document, and to establish hypotheses that this could be a link in the Exodus pathway. Based on his analysis of documentary evidence, Leonard Moeller had long suspected the Aqaba coast as the probable location of the Red Sea crossing. In 1997, he heard reports from other divers who claimed to have found unusual coral structures, some resembling the shapes of chariot wheels. Moeller decided to investigate these claims for himself. The first time I was diving there, of course, we were then looking for possible artifacts. And I had seen on some pictures what we could look for. I was skeptical and excited, because if this is the place for the crossing, then, of course, that's, that's a big thing. So I was excited about that. But I was also skeptical because 3,500 years, that's a long time. But if Nueva is the crossing site, then, of course, you would expect to find remains of the Egyptian army. Like others who had explored Nueva before him, Moeller immediately recognized the difficulty of this search. If we assume that a number of artifacts were spread out on the seabed, sooner or later, corals would start to grow on them. And of course, if you have a number of layers of coral growing on something, it's very hard to distinguish the structure that was there from the very beginning. Though the coral complicates any search here, it may have been instrumental in preserving the shapes of ancient artifacts. For coral is a living organism that will not begin to grow on a foundation of sand or silt. Instead, it must first attach itself to a solid object where it will sometimes conform to the shape of its host. So for instance, if it would grow on a wooden artifact, the wood would normally disappear in the seawaters after a time. But if you have corals growing on the wooden artifact, the coral could have the shape of the wooden artifact. And then the corals would consume the wooden material over periods of time but still keep the shape of the wooden artifacts. During the course of his explorations, Moller observed that the pattern of coral growth at Nueva differed from other parts of the Gulf. Unlike the coral at the northern and southern ends of Aqaba, which often forms large, dense reefs, some covering many acres, the formations at Nueva Beach are generally smaller and scattered randomly across the seafloor. Divers familiar with the area have compared the distribution of coral here to a junkyard 
and the aftermath of a disaster. This description is fitting, and among the strange formations in these waters, many display features indicative of human engineering. When we dive and when we film at the Noveba location, we look for certain structures, and you try to look for 90-degree angles or circular objects. We like structures, so that is what you scan for, so to speak, when you dive. There are situations where you see something that looks like an axle, a hub, something that looks like a wheel, and you say to yourself, this is not a coral reef, this is a coral growth on an artifact. And that is what's different to me when I compare corals at other locations around the world. Since the earliest explorations at Nueva, one distinctive type of formation has often been identified on the seafloor. A slender, table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. And you can see this in different varieties, and it looks very different from normal coral growth. And uh, it is like a man-made structure with a coral growth on it. After reviewing photographic evidence and making several dives of his own, Moeller concluded that a more systematic investigation of the Nueva seafloor was warranted. He realized that the limited diving time afforded by scuba equipment would never allow an extensive search of the area. A higher level of technology was necessary. And in the spring of 2000, the team lowered a robotic camera into these waters for the first time. This has never been done. No one has been in the area at all with a remote control camera. Controlled from the ship, the camera was maneuvered across the seafloor, transmitting video images for study and evaluation. Now, it's very difficult to get the full effect by audio only, so I, again, I'm going to leave the link. This is a clip from the John 10 project, and you can see the video footage that was taken. Uh, Ron Wyatt also had video footage of this, and I'm sure others as well. So. This was one of the things that was very influential to me when I was questioning everything and and I looked it up and and found some of these things. And so I, I find this very fascinating. And the fact that secular historians are not really giving much credence to this at all or not doing much searching, you know, I think honestly, it's hidden, just like I've mentioned before about creation versus evolution or uh, the, the evidence for the flood and all the flood legends around the world and how secular history or, or archaeology and science makes you, th you know, that there is a conspiracy and it is a spiritual one for sure. But... Uh, but I think that there might be scientists that are willfully ignorant 
of the truth. And so now um, the next thing we're going to talk about is the timeline. And this is from a documentary. Uh, There's actually more than one documentary now. I think there's two. But from the uh, Patterns of Evidence, which is the most recent and, uh, you know, very good documentaries that I would encourage you to look up. But we're going to listen to uh, a clip from that talking about the time wall and how the um, typically uh, accepted uh, timeline in history of Egypt, how they uh, misplace the hist- the uh, uh, the claims of the uh, Bible, uh, and they try to to put it in a different place in Egyptian history. So they say, see, it, it never happened because we don't see anything in Egyptian history. But what they're trying to say in patterns of evidence is that, yes, you do find it in Egyptian history, but uh, 250 years, I think, earlier. So let's hear a clip from, from patterns of evidence. Why is it the scholars think the Bible stories of Exodus aren't true? Why are pious fiction, as they call them. And the reason is because of this mistake that was made with Pharaoh Shishak. So I'm going to have to deal with that for you now. So you need probably to be wide awake for this, and you're going to learn something about the complexities of Egyptian chronology. Okay? So just hang in there, because later on, this afternoon, you're going to get all the goodies. Now we're going to do a bit of work, okay? And you're going to have to do some hieroglyphs as well. You all right with that? Okay. So I'm going to explain why... Shishak is not the pharaoh Shoshenk that all the historians and the Egyptologists say he is. For instance, here's a quote from one of the leading professors in, ancient, in Egyptology. He says, this is Hornung, Eric Hornung, there remain many uncertainties about the third intermediate period, as critics such as David Roll have rightly maintained. Even our basic premise of the 925 BC for Shoshenk campaign in Jerusalem is not built on solid foundations. So, if you have 925 BC, the biblical date for year 5 of Rehoboam, you cannot fix Shoshenk to that date because the two campaigns do not match. They are not the same person. The biblical Shishak is not Shoshenk of the Bible. David, could I just ask you a question here? What, why is it so important? What does Egypt give the rest of the Mediterranean world, the ancient world? That's a very good question. The reason why this is critical is because, I didn't know this, but you, you explain. Okay. <clears throat> because Egypt is the richest ancient world nation in terms of texts, because of the pres- preservation of the desert, because they carved in stone, they've got so much material for people to study like me. And therefore, they lend this authority to the rest of the ancient world. If you go to Megiddo, for instance, in the Holy Land, or any biblical city, Hatsa, or wherever you like, you won't find an inscription on the walls. You go to the so-called Solomonic date, it doesn't have a label saying this is built by King Solomon. You go to Egypt, and you can look for a gateway of Ramesses II, and his name's all over it. So you know who built that. You can't say the same thing for the Bible lands. So what you do is, scholars date the archaeology of the Holy Land based on finding Egyptian artifacts in the ground. So if you dig up 
a scarab of Ramesses II in a particular level, you date that level to Ramesses II. It's not dated by the Bible at all. It's dated by ancient Egypt. And that goes for Greece, it goes for Turkey, it goes for Cyprus, it goes for Crete, it goes for Sudan. All those civilizations get their dating from Egypt, they borrow it from Egypt. So if Egypt's wrong, everything else is wrong. Does that answer your question? And that's where the, that's where the challenge comes because people are re reluctant to suggest anything is wrong because they've already somewhat uh, poured the cement and it's hardened. Absolutely. It's carved in stone, literally. The Egyptian dating from the time of Champollion has been carved in stone ever since. And the only way to solve the problem is to knock the monument down and build it again from the foundation upwards, which is my, my job is to do that. I'm not me on my own, by the way. There's a number of other scholars working on this as well. But Hornung recognises the issue. We are not safe with our Egyptian chronology. It is by no means fixed the way everybody says it is. Egyptologists use the Bible to date the start of the 22nd dynasty. This is Shoshenk to 945 BC. The reason is that Shoshenk campaigned in the Holy Land in Canaan in, uh, in his year 20. So you backdate to his year one. So his dynasty begins in 945 BC, based on the Bible. They then date Ramesses II, of so-called Pharaoh of the Exodus, by calculating backwards from that, that position, from 945 BC, adding up the rain lengths, going back through the 21st dynasty and the 20th dynasty, back to the 19th dynasty, where you find Ramesses. So Ramesses gets his date from the biblical synchronism. They then find no evidence for the Exodus and the conquest in the time of Ramesses II. Wonder why. So what do they do? They therefore reject the Bible and call it a work of pious fiction. Think about what's going on here. So the Bible is used to establish Egyptian chronology, which is then used to dismiss the Bible. <laughs> now that's a beautiful case of circular reasoning. Don't use the Bible to date Egypt. Date Egypt from the internal evidence and then look for synchronisms with the Bible. That's the right methodology. So if we've dismissed Shoshenk as the pharaoh who plundered the Temple of Solomon, it's my job to come up with the real Shishak, is it not? Because I don't believe you can knock something down without rebuilding it. So this is my reconstruction. And you're going to be shocked now when you read that subheading. Was Ramesses the Great, Ramesses II, the biblical Shishak? Suddenly, Yul Brynner playing Ramesses is no longer an adversary of Moses, Charlton Heston. He's now become the guy who took the golden shields from the temple. Is that even remotely possible? Well, it is. Now, that was not, not actually from the documentary itself. That was actually a seminar by one of the experts that is documentary. Uh, I'm not sure if he's the maker or not, but he is an expert. And uh, it's, it's kind of complicated. Uh, I'd edited a, a, a few minutes of it together. But um, I'll leave the link for that whole video um, where he talks about the time wall and how there's a mistake made in what is normally accepted in, uh, in Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian timeline and things and how it correlates with, you know, biblical history. So... Um, I believe that they end up with about 250 years uh, difference, 
where they shift the Egyptian timeline to line up. Uh, but the main point is, r regardless of not uh, of whether or not you agree with shifting of timelines and all of that, the main point is that in Egyptian history you find uh, things that back up the the biblical history when Israel is in Egypt and all of that stuff, and and so that is probably a bigger point than yeah, it's. I mean, the, the timelines are going to be off, and, and that's a little bit above my head. But even that is is a problem that is has been solved. And uh, finally, uh, we're just going to just to talk about the writings of Moses and how how given the evidence that uh, that uh, has been provided through these many different wonderful resources, what that means to us. But first, I would like to share a song by my brother's band called Hendrick.
that song was City Lights by the group Hendrick, and I couldn't find them on this album. It's from an album called Exhale. I couldn't find it on iTunes, but I did find it on Apple and Napster and other uh, streaming. Uh, but if you Google uh, Hendrick Exhale, uh, you can find it. And if you like this song, uh, support them and buy their music. All right, so finally I just want to talk about uh, these first five episodes and some of the resources that I passed along. And um, we're going to do another evidential episode next, which is going to be on Jesus Christ and how it all leads to uh, the Bible uh, and and me verifying that the Bible is true. Uh, the first five books of the Bible were, were written by Moses, or at least he, uh, you know, is given credit for them. Um, but there's a lot of things in there that, if true, there's no way Moses could have known on his own. For example, the creation and the hundreds of years or thousands of uh let's see i guess he would have been around 2000 years after creation or something like that maybe a little less and so you know there's a lot of history there that you know perhaps was passed down through eyewitnesses but you know the creation itself cannot be eyewitness except by god himself so if it is true then it has to have been given by God himself. You know, Moses couldn't just make this up if, unless it wasn't true. <laughs> so this is all very uh, important, I think. Um, if the foundation of the Bible is not true, then it can't be the word of God. And what I have done here in these first few episodes so far is try and give... Uh, experts qualified experts that have dug through this stuff and have suggested that yes there is evidence that genesis and exodus are historical historically accurate and can be verified or at least not verified but you know at least they don't contradict what we've found in science and uh and all of this will lead to the, I think, the central focus of the Bible, which is why Jesus Christ came to earth in the first place. And um, what we have a lot more evidence for, you know, I've gone through um, some of the early beginnings, which is very, you know, difficult. There's not as much, um, a lot of, things in history has been lost but we do have enough to help verify some of these things but with Jesus there's a lot more evidence for it and um, the claim is that he was God and became a man and uh, well he was still God but he uh, was born as a man and was crucified for our sins and was resurrected three days later so this is the claim, 
and we're going to be talking about the evidence for Jesus Christ in the next video. Uh, but in the Old Testament, as we've talked about the Red Sea crossing, there's a lot of pictures there. In the final uh, plague that was sent to Egypt, uh, the God commanded Moses to tell all of his people to put a uh, to to kill a lamb and put it on the doorpost, and that the angel of death, basically, that would go around. Uh, and it would kill the oldest son of each family unless they had a lamb on the doorpost. And I believe that this was true for anybody that did. And there might have been, I assume that Egyptians knew about this or had the warning of it and could have put a lamb on their doorpost as well. And there was probably some people of Israel that did not put a lamb on their doorpost. And the, the, the angel that would come in to kill the oldest would, would pass over any door that had a lamb on the doorpost. And, of course, this is symbolic of Jesus Christ, who anyone who has the Lamb of God on their heart, that is Jesus Christ, that the con condemnation will be passed over on us. And that's just one of the uh, major, and, and the Israelites would c celebrate Passover to this very day. And we as Christians have continued Passover as Jesus gave to the disciples the Passover and told, him, told them that the bread represented his body and that the wine represented his blood. And so he told us what they were t partaking of and what it means. So the church continues to this day also to uh, practice that. Um, I think also there's the imagery of Israel being slaves in Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea and then they are free. Uh, as we of Christians are, have been, as Paul wrote, that we were slaves to sin and under the blood of Christ, we are now free from sin. And the sins of us are, are covered. So there's a lot of imagery in there, which I, I could, I'm running low on time, so I won't get into all of it now. But I just wanted to share that and uh, end this video by saying that Jesus Christ paid his price, paid the price for you that you deserve de death, the wages of sin is death, that all have sinned and fall short, fall short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I would encourage you, if you have not done so, to give your life to Christ. And uh, thank you very much, the, this, and have a wonderful day.